Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Edna White, and you are on Keeping It Real on Purpose. This is the podcast where there's real people that have real lives in real business with real stories. And of course, we're going to be with them all on purpose. So today we are talking to Kira Wackett, who is a licensed, licensed mental health therapist. Welcome to Keeping It Real, Kira. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, I am too. I'm so excited. So we're going to talk about shame today, but I want to ask you, how do you show up in the world? I think this question evolves as life evolves and as you let it. So I think me 10 years ago would have just been giving you the laundry list of what I do. I think the me that exists now thinks more about I am a person (laughs) on a a journey to shame resilience. I mm-hmm. think about this in relation to me as a mom, me as a daughter, me as a partner, me as a business owner, just really this embodiment of wanting to let go of the constant fear that I'm not worthy enough and the sort of scarcity right. mindset and the effect that has on me, but also the the ways that then I contribute to systems of isms and oppression when I stay stuck in that mindset too. So that's really, I think, who I am and how I'm trying to embody energy moving through this world. Yeah, yeah. And I think along with all those roles that we do play, there's, you know, we, it's almost like women sometimes want to do everything perfectly. And then mm-hmm. we we start to slide down this, oh, ashamed, the effects, you know, they start to get that little ashamed or eh, I'm not doing too great. So mm-hmm. I really want to delve into the shame effect. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? What it looks like? Yeah. So like? shame is an emotion. Shame is a fear-based emotion. So there's mm-hmm. kind of a lot of us struggle with what do we do with fear? There's a big, you know, conquer your fears, get through them. Shame is universally experienced and it'll show up throughout our lives. So there's no way to get rid of it. It's about sort mm-hmm. of reworking how we experience it and the effect it has. And so the right. specific version or the specific fear is the fear of not being good enough, the fear of being right. unworthy, not being lovable, being rejected. And for most of us, that has been mm-hmm. a part of our existence since we were born. And right. since weird to think about it that way, but it really is this, when we're born, our brain, our body is trying to figure out who we are and how we make sense of living in this world. And so every bit of information kind of informs us to say, whether it's directly how people respond to you or indirectly watching the world, that this is better or worse. This is right or wrong. This is what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And that very rigid all or nothing filtering system of our brain comes up with this Uh belief that there are rules. And so you mentioned women specifically thinking about what are the rules if you identify or you're socialized female, what are the rules if you are in any form of a marginalized identity? So I'm Middle Eastern. What does that mean for somebody? What does that mean to Uh have brown skin, black skin in the U.S. or in other cultures where racism runs rampant? And so what we see is that shame is really this perpetuation of internalized fears that who I am is inherently not good enough. Therefore I have to do or be, or look a certain way to be worthy of love. And then that manifests in the, you know, I have a toddler. And so I see it show up in the 
I'm a therapist with a toddler. I should be able to handle every tantrum Mm -hmm. and do the gentle parenting. And I should be able to keep the books rotated and the house cleaned and run my business and do all these things. And so it becomes these expectations of living and existence that focus more on what we do and really take us away from getting curious about and leaning into who we are as people. Yeah. Totally agree with that, hundred percent. So, how can I mean? I'm I'm sorry. So, does this affect relationships? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, shame. Really, the biggest reasons why I think shame became a thing people were interested in is they recognized how it was affecting their interpersonal relationships and dynamics. And so, if you experience shame there's kind of three defense systems when we feel shame that show up and they're all related to interpersonal connection. So the first response is something called moving towards, which is Mm -hmm. really this, when I feel shame, when I feel like I've screwed up, when I'm not good enough, I'm going to do everything I can to make myself useful to you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to overextend. This is something that now is sort of talked about in the literature as the human giver. Everything that I need is put on the back burner so I can take care of you at all costs, no matter what. And people do this in their personal lives, in their professional lives, sort of all across the board. And then there is the moving away. So that's kind of the second response, which is Mm -hmm. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I'm feeling shame and I can't face it. So I'm just going to shut everything down. It's the person that binge watches Netflix for five or six hours, suddenly is absent on text message, doesn't show up, sort of disconnects as a way of protection. And then the third response is called moving against, which is when I feel shame, I'm going to do everything I can to make somebody else feel shame. All three of these response patterns are about trying to secure connection or trying to protect the loss of connection. So either, gosh, if you need me, you're going to keep me around, which is kind of Iteration number one, the moving away is saying, well, if I move away, if I detach, eventually I can come back and I won't have severed all connection. It's also kind of the idea of I'm going to take myself out before you can reject me idea. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. the third part is saying, well, if I make everybody else feel like crap, like I do, where can they go? So it really is this kind of misery loves company mentality. So shame Yeah, it very much affects us. It's kind of the root of narcissism. It's the root of burnout and human giver. It's really kind of the root of everything about how we show up and how we engage. That's a that's good. I, I didn't realize um, it's the beginning of narcissism. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. really good. Wow. So, what does it look like in, in the relationship issues? You know, how do I how you know how, what does it look like to me? You know, yeah. is it abusive relationships? What is it? Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people listening, just based on some of the topics you cover and and my mm-hmm. assumption about the audience is that many people yes. listening are going to identify more with that version one, maybe being the person who does it all for everyone around them. Gotcha. And so a lot of the times that's something like you are the yes person at work. You're constantly taking on new projects. You're, you know, think about the world and the state of the world right now. Many companies are going through major cuts, lack of resources, not enough people to staff teams, but you're taking it all on anyways. So there is kind of that aspect and idea. There's the, in your relationship at home with your partner, with your kids, with your friends, you're the one that's always making the calls, always making the plans, always doing the grocery shopping, the meal prepping, the house cleaning, and you do it, do it, do it until you burn out and you get resentful. 
And so this sort of cyclical, I'm the one that's responsible for everything. I should be able to handle it all. And probably on some level, the belief I can do it better than other people can Mm -hmm. mixed with, or sort of matched with nobody cares. Nobody shows up. I feel so alone and lonely. So that's probably how most people listening are going to experience this, but it Mm -hmm. can manifest in if people are familiar with codependency, a lot of codependent relationships are really oh, yes. shame. And so right. that I need to enmesh myself with someone else. My value is dependent on this relationship security and how I align with it. A lot of abusive relationships are rooted in that sort of shame patterns again of this maybe narcissism, abusive nature where somebody is making someone else feel small, really again, all rooted to my self-worth is so mm-hmm. unstable and fragile. The only way that I feel okay is if I inflict that in other ways. And then the right. person on the other side of that believing sort of the normalized dysfunction that they're not worth something else. And so then they'll convince themselves, at least I've got this. So there's yeah. this kind of settling in. And so, yeah, I, I would assume for most people listening that they'll really line up with that first piece of recognizing sort of almost yeah. a cycle of burnout. I'm doing it all, all the time. I'm the person everybody counts on until I burn out. And then I take myself offline really quick and I've got to get it back together to keep going because my value isn't being this for everybody else. And it's become what people depend on. Yeah. I know for myself and my own story is I was the um, the family hero mm-hmm. um, and I became the family hero, kept keeping everybody together, housing everybody, you know, right. making sure everybody's good. And I had, you know, I, I have five sisters, you know, so I, I was making sure they were good, making making sure every, you know my nephews were great. And then finally one day it was, I was just crying for no reason, just like so over. I felt like I had 12 backpacks filled with bricks on my back. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I just kind of like just, just fell down and said, I don't, I can't do this any longer. Right. And I found myself like unpacking a lot of that stuff. And I spent like maybe two weeks alone, just unpacking. And I, and I literally told everybody, I said, I'm not going to be the hero anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm giving the job back to whoever had it, the first, was supposed to have it <laughs> in the first place. I'm giving it back, you yeah. know? And I told every, I sold my house, had a big house. I said, I'm, I'm selling the house. I'm moving by this date. Everyone has got to get their act together and move out mm. on their own. And I was, you know, by that time, my divorce was final that same month. And I sold the house and I was like, I was so relieved. I moved mm-hmm. by myself, you know, and I don't try to, sometimes I do try to pick it back up, but then I just remember what the freedom feels like, mm-hmm. you know, what the freedom feels like. No, you can handle it. You can work on it yourself, you know? And I do that for my kids. I do that for my, you know, my sisters and they're, they're healthier for that. Yeah. Because, you know, um, if you continue to be the hero or whatever, whatever role you take on within the family, um, it doesn't do you any good. And and like you said, you burn out and I had completely burned out. Well, and, and you were doing it because it became, the expectation and the norm. And so it was, I have to do this. What does it say about me if I don't? And you start to take responsibility for people and things that aren't yours. And that's, that's how shame functions is it's the shift away from making that choice because it's your value and how you want to show up and feeling like you get to choose it, but also 
stop choosing it when it doesn't fit for you versus I have to do this. Everything is riding on this. I don't have the ability to say no. And that's what you broke away from to set boundaries. And now there probably are times where you're like, no, I do want to help here. I do want to take this on. I have the choice and capacity for this, but I'm not opening the door and expanding it to everything anymore. And that's really, I think the shame resilience piece is saying, Mm -hmm. We're always going to feel a little like our worth is dependent on external validation. We can't get away from that. We've been socialized that way. And it's really saying, how do we shift away from I have to, to I get to choose to. Right. That's a, that's a great piece. The good, it's a good piece is that. Yeah. That empowerment. Have a choice. Yeah. 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 And then being okay when someone else is disappointed. Cause you know, just using your example, it's not like everyone was like, great. Good for you. This is amazing. We're so excited. (laughs) Like they had their own reaction. And part Mm -hmm. of the process of shame resilience is saying, I have the right to choose me and to make yeah. the right choices for me. They have the right to be disappointed, to be upset. And yep. it's not my job to fix it. That doesn't nope. say anything about me because yeah. they are upset. That's not yeah. mine to hold anymore. Yeah. And I think um, doing that, I, I started doing that when I was nine. I was a young girl, you know, my, mm-hmm. um, my mom and, and um, my stepdad fought a lot. So I was the one that put everybody in a safe place, make sure they don't get hurt, make sure mm-hmm. that they are happy, not crying and upset. And I started that at nine. I remember being yeah. nine, going through that. Um, so I, that was a hook, you know, it was hooked into me. Like, but when I, when I finally said no more, um, even now with situations, um, I don't have to right. be involved in that situation he or she does have a choice. So they have to make their own choices. I can't force them. Like I used to, you know, like, oh, come on. I'm the mom of the family now. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, no, I have, I, I have the ability to be silent in any situation. Mm-hmm. I don't have to say anything anymore, you know? Right. So I'm good, you know? And that, and that really has um, freed me. Like I'm, I feel like I, every day I wake up like a bird flying. I feel so I could do anything. It's just amazing how happy I am. And I think getting rid of that shame, shame is really, it grounds you to a place that you're just paralyzed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really does. It's, it's the, the rooting and you sort of time stamp yourself into one aspect Mm -hmm. of being and one responsibility. And it is truly a a disintegration of the self because you don't get a chance to say, how do I feel? What do I need? What do I want? Do I want to choose this? Do I like this? Does this fit for me? You sort of strip away all power to say, there's Mm -hmm. no choice in that. I don't have that right. I just have to keep going. And that, that is traumatic on the body because it's, Mm -hmm. it's taking away any sense of connection with your own body's needs and wants. And so it's like you said, it took a long time to get back online. It does for a lot of people when people start Mm -hmm. the therapy process or working with me, I have a course that people do that's all around shame resilience. And when they ask how long the course takes and I say, well, the course takes about six to nine months and it's iterative and sort of designed to be about oh, a yeah. two to three year process. And people are like, what? I'm looking for the quick fix. Like, give me the five no, steps. There's... I want to feel better. You know, it's like, well. No way. No yeah, way. That's, yeah. Just think about it. I was nine when I felt right. that. Exactly. Nine. <laughs> Come on, you're going to get it done in, uh, no, uh-uh. in, a, right. in a quick fix, six weeks, 90 days. No, yeah. it's no <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's no such. No and such. that's, 
And I like I I think people that offer solutions that are sort of short term and and band aid solutions I get it and I also yeah. think that sometimes there's valuable information but that's I think also being a mindful consumer is recognizing yeah. too that that propensity to to provide quick fixes comes from their sense of shame of feeling like well no one's going to do the hard work and I need to stay relevant so I got to give them something but the reality mm-hmm. is this is painful and hard and it's about you and it's about you finding the right space and place to do that work in a supportive environment. And to realize, you know, I've been a therapist for gosh, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight years now. And I've Mm -hmm. had a significant childhood trauma, been in my own therapy for over 20 years. I'm still learning every day, whether that's a small bit of shame, big pieces of shame, you know, I didn't get the kitchen cleaned up or I didn't rotate my toddler's books in time to big things. Like yeah. I should be doing blank by now. I should be at this point and recognizing all of that is rooted to that same place. Like you said, that same stuckness. And so the yeah. untethering of ourselves from this belief, regardless of where it comes from, and also being mindful and graceful with yourself when you do have different intersecting identities in a world that tells you, you don't belong, that's going to make it even harder. And so what does that look like to be with yourself on the journey, to be excited for that two, three, four, 10, 20 year process and continuously getting to know yourself because you've spent decades avoiding or feeling like you didn't have the right to do that. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, Brene Brown said that um, shame serves no purpose. Right. Serves no purpose at all. Um, I think we didn't bring up the the part where this, I know I, I don't, I didn't do it, but there's a part in shame that you're always apologizing for stuff that you didn't even do. Right. Right. I, talk about that part about the apologizing a lot for things that you don't even, you know, you haven't done. Well, I think a big thing around shame. So there's a a drama triangle that was talked about a lot in the nineties around interpersonal dynamics and conflicts, Mm -hmm. really looking at other people. But I think it fits really well when you think about shame, which is, so the three parts of the triangle are the hero, the victim, and the villain. Mm -hmm. And the hero, if we think about this in the context of shame, the hero is the person that says it's my job and responsibility to be everything. Again, that story you started to get at nine and my job is to do this. The villain role is the, if anything goes wrong, it's my it's fault. Yep. Yeah. If, if somebody gives me a look across the street and they look unhappy, it's probably because of something that I did and I wasn't aware of. If my mm-hmm. partner comes home and they're in a bad mood, that's on me. What did I do? And you're always mining for data to support that. And then the the third rung or the tier of the triangle is then the victim, which is Once we've played the hero and the villain out of necessity, out of survival, that's the role we're supposed Mm -hmm. to play. We reach a point of burnout and that's when we sort of throw our hands up and we're like, nobody cares. Everything's terrible. What's the point? We kind of get in that state of ambivalence. It's Mm -hmm. not, I I hate that word victim because I think it's been taken out of context so much, but it's the idea of feeling like I have no control, but feeling like we have the pressure that we're supposed to be able to control it all. And so I think that is that's the place of stuckness. And that apologizing comes from the villain and the victim sort of in Mm -hmm. tandem of, gosh, I can't seem to do anything right. And I'm responsible for everything that went wrong. And so I'm going to own that. It also then feels safer because if I can own it, maybe I can fix it and then things will be okay. Because we get very conditioned to avoid anything with uncertainty and anything that it feels like we couldn't make better, Mm -hmm. even if that would be nicer if it was somebody else was the problem. 
but it's right. We can't control it. We can't fix it. There's not a way to improve it. And so there's much more comfort if we assume the responsibility because it keeps it in the wheelhouse of feeling like then I can figure out a way to manage it all and be it all. And then things will be okay because at the core, again, that's my job. Okay. So how can, you know, can you give the audience some, you know, once they realize they're in that stuckness thing, what are some steps they can start to, get help with the shame. And I know one of them is when you mentioned you had the, um, the, the classes, the course, but what else could they do? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that starts is just to internalize the idea that shame is a universal experience. Cause I think a lot of gotcha. us have ex- kind of convinced ourselves we're fine. And so we right. go up and down in the burnout cycle. We're burnt out. We're overwhelmed. We plummet. We cash out for a little while and we're just crashed and then we come back online. And so recognizing that cycle is it's not a product of the house you're in, the job you work, the relationship you have, those things might be factors, but it truly is an internal storyline that you have. That's keeping you continuously revisiting the same experience, even in different homes, relationships, jobs, X, Y, and Z. And so I think taking that in first is key And then starting to really think about what has been normalized for you. What have been Mm -hmm. those roles and relationships? How were you conditioned that you had to show up? And so I think a big thing for people to fill in in their head is just start with the statement, I'm only worthy. I'm only good enough. I'm only lovable. Whatever resonates most with them. If, okay, what is it that you have to do? Go through your different relationships, go back to being nine, thinking about your caregivers. How mm-hmm. did you have to show up? Was it, you know, my parent was an alcoholic and I didn't know how they were going to be every day. And so I was constantly in this state of hypervigilance, not knowing if I was going to get yelled at, or if I had to do this. And if I could come up with a plan to take care of everything, things felt okay. Or I was right. in a family home where grades and thinness were idealized. And so I was always made to believe that the size of my waist and the grades on my report card mattered. And so success became very numbers driven. And so whatever that is starting to go back and really ask yourself, what were the rules that I started to learn about who I had to be and how I had to show up based Mm -hmm. on the different roles and the different aspects of your identity. So I identify as a female, I am Middle Eastern, but I was socialized and I very much present white. So being mindful of what are the privilege pieces and also what are the kind of shame-based pieces of these different aspects of identity, growing up with a mom with mental health issues in the prison system, what were those aspects of shame that I carried? And so just starting to get curious and to catalog that, the Mm -hmm. second thing I think we do then is we start to really revisit the aspect of control. So a simple exercise people can do is to take a sheet of paper, put a circle in the sheet of paper inside of the circle, write everything that's in your life right now, that's in your control on the outside, everything that isn't. And so, and you could do this specific to a role, to a relationship, to a part of yourself, but Mm -hmm. really starting to get clear on, like when you mentioned the apology piece, just how Mm -hmm. often are we taking control for things that we can't control such as. Like a big one for me is I can't control what anybody thinks about me, no matter what I do, no matter how I show up, I have no control over that. Even though my brain will spend every ounce of energy it can to try to convince me that I can. And so starting to think about that, what are the rules Mm -hmm. 
And how have you been kind of confusing your relationship with control? I think those are the two really key insight building exercises people can do to start to bring themselves to a greater sense of awareness of it. Once Mm -hmm. that happens, then I think it's finding someone, whether it is a therapist, a program like mine, a coach, whoever it is that they line up with. I, I think personally, it's helpful to do it with someone that isn't in your kind of friend or family zone because that outside resource can be the most helpful to be like, wait a minute, let's hold a mirror over here. This this doesn't seem to make sense. And they're not in your bubble of normalized dysfunction. You know? So when you think about like your siblings, they're going to be a part of that normalized dysfunction in a way that Mm -hmm. they might not see it. And so then I think you go to someone else and you say, look, this is what I got. This is what I know. I need to start to figure out how I'm showing up as a result of these things and Mm -hmm. what it looks like to choose something different because your brain doesn't have that accessible yet. It's not there. It's not programmed in your brain. We need someone else to start to introduce those things. Mm -hmm. And then over time, that's really where it becomes a part of our normal. And then we kind of take it and run with it. Okay. That's some good stuff. Well, audience, um, I hope that you have your pen and paper and I know you're jotting things down. And this is just really the, the, the uh, I guess, 101 of shame. Yeah. And I know there's a lot more to this. So I'm going to ask our guests um, to just give us, you know, how they can contact you with any questions or, you know, where, where they can find you. Yeah. So visiting my website, I think is the easiest, best place. So it's adversityrising.com. There's options right in there to send me an email, to reach out about programs, to see some other resources. I'm the one that answers every one of those emails. So if people have questions, next steps, just want to chat about where to go from here, that's Mm going to be the best place to find me. Oh, wonderful, Kira. Wonderful. So last encouraging words for anyone that's going through shame, what can you tell them? I think the most, the two things that I hold every single day is that I do have a choice. And in that, nothing can be solved in a day. So I think the choice piece being, I can choose how much I let that thought take over. Again, I can't Mm -hmm. choose a lot of my circumstances. I can't choose most of my past. I can't choose my future necessarily but I do have a choice and I have a choice over how much time I'm going to sit with some of these thoughts. And if I'm going to give them the keys to the car and then also reminding myself, gosh, some days I'm going to give shame the keys to the car and I Uh can't fix it all in a day. And that urgency feeling of like, okay, now I know what it is. I have to fix it going. I'm going to be okay. And this is, I'm sure I know shame's here. I know it's a hard Mm -hmm. road, can't fix it all today. And I'm going to give myself the grace and permission to not try to, and to love myself today, just as I am, even if shame's the one driving the car. That's good. That's really good. Well, we thank you. This brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much, Kira, for being here today and giving us just an insight into shame and a little bit of education. I love it. I love it all. (laughs) Thank you. uh, (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. So Thanks for listening, audience. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post it about on social media and leave a rating or review. And you can catch me at EJW Coaching or just Google me and I'll be around. But please get in touch with Kira Wackett because I'm sure she has more to give you on this subject. This is your host, Edna White, and my esteemed guest, Kira Wackett saying goodbye for now.